Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to Breakthrough Radio. This is your host, Michelle Price, here, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we are celebrating 10 years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies for business. Well, it is the official first Monday of the month here on Breakthrough Radio, and that's when we hear from, uh, actually, you know, this official first Monday, we're going to hear about what was the short tip uh, that each guest host that's a part of the Breakthrough Radio team shared in the year-end show. And you know what we love about our Breakthrough Tip at the top of the show is you can go take action on that information right now. You don't have to think about it. You can just put it into play. Now, our featured spot today is with Sharna Goldseeker and Michael Moody, the co-authors of Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing and Giving. Our featured interview is a 30 to 35-minute conversation as a nice deep dive into the topic of the day to allow you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Then we wrap up this Monday with our Breakthrough Bite and Jeff Shuey, who brings us a fun and fantastic conversation on the intersection between people and technology. You know, our Breakthrough Bite is a 10-minute segment that's more than our tip and not as much as our featured interview, meeting all the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio, and if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. And that's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. You know, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation for each episode. And that means that any and everything we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Sharna, Michael, Jeff, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question. Engage us in conversation. And, of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us. So let's absorb a quick review on our year-end show and the tips that we learned from the entire Breakthrough Radio crew. Now, here are my notes on this and, and what uh, I pulled from this episode. And, of course, we invite you to go listen to it. You know, Jeff's tip for everybody, as well as mainly for himself, what he shared and, and then what he was going to do differently in 2018 to improve upon that, was to ask early. And, you know, I love this. What Jeff was really sharing and, and what he, he, he talked to us about that morning was how many times a lot of us are huge givers. We share other people's content. We're the first to step in and help when someone needs help. And a lot of times what happens is we forget to ask. So he's reminding everybody, make sure you 
ask. And when you do it, ask early. Love it. Then Yard shared how perfection is the enemy of progress. You know, he decided that from what he was working on last year with his own startup alcove and their launch is that process is necessary in order to be fluid. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to seeing how he's going to be implementing that for 2018. And then myself, I shared Last year was really about significant loss, and the thing that we're focusing on this year is catalyzation. What has to happen in order to move forward? And then Stuart Rogers from VentureBeat, who always shows really great tips at the top of the show about marketing technology, said that he's learned that the game of hustle doesn't really move you forward. He's going to spend more time looking for ways to play during the workday. So he's decided to do things differently. He's creating more balance, which helps him tap into his creativity better. Got to love it. And then think of Jakovic shared, everything to everyone translates being nothing to no one. And the thing that was so cool about when we were talking with Finka was, One of her core qualities, description, talks about being cutting edge. And what came out of that conversation was a reminder that there's two kind of edges that you can stand on, that that precipice of, of forward motion. And that could be a razor edge or it could be a mountain of an edge. And so she's decided she's going to stand on a mountain of an edge to have that strength behind her. And then Andrea Walsh, our go-for-no-gal, talked about her biggest mistake in 2015 was not being coachable and not being able to give up control. I love it when our team is so willing to be Oh, just vulnerable with you guys about what didn't work for them. And so she learned a huge lesson for the second time on the same thing. <laughs> and so we're going to be here to support her this year in asking each fourth Monday when she comes on to share about go for no strategies, what is she doing to let go of having to be in control and how is she being more coachable? Boy, I just love the year-end show. You guys really show up for that one. We had a 225% bump in listenership for that show. So thank you for that. Now, in our last episode, we talked with Bill Meehan and Kim Jonker, the authors of Engine Impact, the Essentials of Strategic Leadership in the Nonprofit Sector. Now, a big company that's been instrumental in exploring new ways of giving is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you create value for your internal and your external customers as well as your nonprofit donors? You know, expectations really have changed, and that means you need to find new ways to change with them. And one of those changes is in the game of buying for business. So no matter what industry you sit, and that's why having a buyer journey map has really become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. 
And this is exactly what growth hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached and asked for help to grow their business and their revenues. So growth hacking CMO are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing clients how to structure their execution with precision. So defining what's important to your customers today and using analytics to see how they're making their buying decisions is the savvy way to prepare for their future needs and for your company to stay relevant. And when you know what's valuable to your customers, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcomed. So whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches. It's your sweet spot in business. So connect and discover how growthhackingcmo.com can help you do that for 2018. Now before we start this feature interview, remember we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. So let me tell you a little bit about both of our guests today. Sharna Goldseeker is a speaker, writer, consultant, and today's leading expert on multi-generational and next-generation philanthropy. You know, a next-gen donor herself, she offers a trusted insider's perspective. As executive director of 21-64, the nonprofit practice she founded to serve philanthropic and family enterprises, Sharna has created the industry's gold standard tool for transforming how philanthropic families define their values, collaborate, and govern. Ooh, I know someone I need to introduce her to. And then Michael Moody helps people navigate today's complex world by giving the world of giving and social innovation. He holds the world's first ever endowed chair for family philanthropy. I gotta love it when your tongue gets all tied in the morning on the first day of the week. Philanthropic. Oh gosh, I'm gonna skip it. <laughs> the Fry Foundation Chair at the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State University. You know, a well-known commentator on the vital role that philanthropy plays in our lives. He is the co-author of Understanding. Philanthropy and the meaning and the mission of the philanthropic reader. So, you know what? I have got a lot of questions from last week where people were saying, Why are you guys talking about um, giving and next gen donors? And you, you, you kind of ended the year on, on talking about uh, social impact and nonprofits. So, here's the deal one of the things that we've noticed is that entrepreneurs and CEOs will reach a certain level of success and then they are not prepared for when they're ready to give back. So our goal today is to be talking about what are the philanthropic trends, how young big donors can uh, enlighten other leaders in this arena, and that's why we want to have that conversation with both Sharna and Michael. So you guys, please join me as we welcome them both to Breakthrough Radio today. So, hi, guys. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. It's terrific. Thanks for having us on. So, one of the things that um, it's been kind of fascinating, especially since uh, we've watched here in our local space as well as I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people in the global space because of being a chapter director at Startup Grind. It's kind of cool how we can have our finger on the pulse of things that happen all around the world as well as locally, is that 
I've observed entrepreneurs get to a certain level of success, and they a lot of times are so driven to achieving that level of success, as soon as they decide they want to give back, they want to jump into it with the same measure of intensity. But then they turn around and they go, wait a minute, I don't know anything about how to do this. You know, I, I you, just like I've read some of the things that you shared in Generation Impact, they want to be just as efficient and they want to get as much um, uh, or, or, or generate as much impact in the nonprofit space that they decide to to play in as they did in the business space, yet they didn't think about it till they were already to the point where they wanted to take action. So let's start there. Let's start with what what can our listeners do to help themselves prepare earlier so that all of a sudden they're not at the starting line and they don't have any idea where to go from. Uh, Sharni, you want to start that conversation? Sure. And I'll just say in our research for Generation Impact, how next-gen donors are revolutionizing giving, we did find what you're describing, that entrepreneurs as well as inheritors want to bring their focus on making an impact to their giving, and that's revolutionizing the field of philanthropy. So we're not just looking at um, how the robber barons of the early 1900s set up in Gilded Age philanthropy and sort of established philanthropic institutions where you had a foundation and you wrote checks. And, you know, one way of giving entrepreneurs are bringing their business acumen and their interest and in impact to the philanthropic field. So, again, we're excited to talk with you about this today. Um, for your listeners who are uh, entrepreneurs themselves or coaching, advising entrepreneurs, you know, we often – ask people at, at 2164, the consulting organization which I work, we ask three questions of people who are just starting out. Um, upon whose shoulders do I stand, right? Like, where am I coming from? What's the legacy of who I am? Um, what are the values that I grew up with that are informing, right, how I see the world? And then secondly, who am I? What do I care about? What do I value? What do I prioritize? Um, because they're just a million and a half nonprofits in the United States alone today, forget about globally. So how do you sort of sort through those choices? And until we have our internal compass of what's the legacy that brings us to today and what are the values with which I'm approaching giving, it's hard to sort out um, the last question, which is, okay, now what do I do about it, right? How do I decide the kind of donor I want to be? Um, in fact, there's a book one of our colleagues wrote, Jim Grubbin, who it's called Strangers in Paradise, where he talks about um, people who did not grow up with giving, or, excuse me, with wealth or giving until after the age of 12, right? Maybe they acquired their financial resources later. Um, he calls them natives, um, sorry, immigrants to this new land. So if you grew up with wealth before age 12, maybe you're a native, but after it, you are an immigrant. You are learning a new language, a new way of being. Um, so even successful entrepreneurs who are used to the having wealth and financial acumen and figuring out how to navigate that, starting into the land of giving um, can be a new, a new enterprise. And so, again, thinking about the, the upon whose shoulders you stand, the values you want to bring to your giving, and how you want to align those to make an impact um, is probably the best place to start. Well, you know, I love how you stated it's important to really understand 
who you are and what's important to you. And it's funny because that's something that we have to do with entrepreneurs in all phases in the startup arena, as well as the established entrepreneurs. They find themselves going through different stages of entrepreneurship, but they're still focused on on the daily things, even if they have their long-term goals up on the wall on their whiteboard, that they forget that they're a huge piece of what moves that machine forward. And it's always been fascinating to me how we have to kind of bring that conversation back to who are you and what's important to you, where are you finding yourself changing, and how do you incorporate that in what you're doing as a leader, giving your even your team permission to find who they are and what's important to them, and then how does that play in the role or the, the team as a company. So I can totally see how that would be uh, a really pivotal thing for people to tap into as they start looking in, in the space of giving. Michael, what kind of things do you – of you and observe from your position because you kind of come at this, even though you're in the same space, you come at this from a different perspective than Sharna does. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I think we, um, we, we were uh, both um, very excited when we, when we, you know, started to do this research and really started to have these deep conversations with uh, this incredibly important group of people. That is the the next generation of those who are going to be the major donors um, in our society and and ma- major donors at a level uh, that is really historically unprecedented. I think that's something important for us to establish at the beginning is that these the next generation of donors are really going to be the biggest donors in history. They're going to surpass the, the, the you know, the Gilded Age Carnegies and Rockefellers that, uh, that Sharna mentioned before. So, you know, it, when we started to talk to this incredibly group, of, uh, uh, this incredibly important group of people, both Sharna and I were really impressed by just how seriously they're taking that historic role uh, and, and how, in, how, how significant they, uh, they uh, you know, are searching for the learning opportunities and how um, how proactive they are about wanting to become better donors, about wanting to learn those things that are necessary to be strategic and to have that great impact that they want. And so I think, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the approach that many of the ones who are coming to this role as a donor um, have taken to their, their, their roles as entrepreneurs you know, very proactive about making themselves more strategic, being more effective, being able to take ideas that they have to scale, all of those things are being translated now into their approach to how they want to do their giving. Um, and it's a very exciting time. We think it's a very historically important time, not just because of the, the resources that these donors have to give, but because of just how imp- uh, significant this learning moment is for these next generation of major donors. Um, they are becoming the donors that they're going to be uh, for the next several decades, they're becoming them right now. They're they're going through their powerful learning journeys um, right now, and I think that's very uh, a very significant time for all of us. I will say also in terms of, of going back to who they are and trying to find their sort of compass in their giving. Um, one thing that's also very powerful that we found uh, in talking to many of these donors is the idea that they are both that they're, they they want their values to be aligned across all aspects of their life, and I think 
think that's where this connection between how they are as givers and how they've been as entrepreneurs can come out for those who are earning their own wealth and becoming donors. They, they don't think that they have one set of values that they pursue when they're a business person and one set of values that they pursue when they're a donor. They believe that they, they have core values that need to be aligned across those areas. And, and some of them are very strategic. I mean, you know, you talked about the whiteboard in their office. They're very strategic about, you know, laying out here are my values. Here's how I'm going to live. Those, I'm going to live those values in my investments, in my business life, as a parent, and as a donor, as a community citizen, et cetera, et cetera. So I think values alignment is an absolute priority um, for this next generation, and uh, and we talk about that a lot in the book. You know, one of the things I find kind of fascinating about this conversation, and um, for listeners who've been with us the entire 10 years, they've, they've heard this a few times, but new listeners, this might be the first time they've heard it, and that is when we started 10 years ago, I was told it is not a good idea to have a radio show that talks about mindset as well as tools, techniques, and strategy, that they were two divergent topics in trying to put them together wasn't going to work. And I'm like, yeah, but they need to be together. And so that is one time I'm glad I was stubborn as an entrepreneur and didn't listen to the thinking that surrounded me at the time. Because what I'm noticing is that whether it's startup grind, uh, success has really all been around, and Derek uh, Anderson, the founder, talks about this every time he visits another city or country, that when his mentor said, what is it that you and your organization, what, what are your values? And, and they came off his mouth just so easily. He's like, but where is that on the website? Where is that in your messaging? Where is that to allow people to know it in order for them to be attracted to it? So they made that change very quickly. It helped us, for example, as chapter directors because now every time I have to make a decision, I ask myself and my team, how does this align to the values of who we are and what we represent and what we're supposed to be doing? And, and I just love it in the sense that I'm seeing people in business starting to really recognize the importance of doing business that way as well as living their life in that, frankly, as a boomer, I got given such a hard time for trying to, mm, I won't even say lovingly, push this <laughs> for a very long time. You know, it, it's funny how people will mock you <laughs> and tell you you're crazy, and then you have to be patient for like 20 years for everyone to finally get there and go, oh, okay, we see we see the, no pun intended, value in that. <laughs> now you're I'm a thought leader. Now add. you're ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> you get a lot of arrows in your back when you're ahead of the curve, Sharna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious to ask, what can we do um, and, and how can we maybe help entrepreneurs who are recognizing this core premise, that it's important for them to identify their values and then ask the really good questions, how does it translate across all aspects of my activities. What have you seen in your space that um, that um, maybe just 
you know, some, some tools or some books or some people who are doing work in that area that will allow them to learn how to really implement that well. Sure. So what you're saying resonates. I appreciate as a boomer that you are ahead of the curve on this. We hear from our Gen X and millennial next-gen donors that they felt their parents often um, – compartmentalized, right? I'll make re- money over here and then I'll give it away over here. And oftentimes that what they um, were doing to earn the wealth undermined what they were doing on the other side, right? Or a foundation that has, you know, 95% of its assets invested in um, kinds of companies that might undermine the environment when all their grant making is going to the environment and climate change, right? So they're trying to um, as Michael say, bring more alignment, sort of have their values um, implemented in all these areas. In fact, um, one of the things people we interviewed said to us is we want to go all in. We don't want to, right, once we figure out our values, how do we not just spread like peanut butter, right, but how do we stay focused? Um, So 2164, for example, has a very simple deck on its website, 2164.net, of motivational values cards, right? 30 cards, take 10 minutes, prioritize the deck from top to bottom, or even just choose your few top and your few bottom. What are the values that most motivate me in my decision-making, in my giving, Right. And once we sort of articulate those values, then we can begin to think about how are we going to allocate our resources in that way. So whether it's, you know, a next gen donor client of ours who said to me, um, I've been asked now to join a bunch of boards. How do I choose? So we went back to the values deck. It was very clear that effectiveness was her top value. So we looked at all the boards that all the nonprofits that had asked for her time and and her talent and her treasure. Um, and it was clear that some of them weren't even measuring their performance, right? So we set those aside and we looked at the couple that had a mission, had a strategy, had monitoring and evaluation, and could generate the data to say whether they were on point and making an impact or not. And those were the couple that she decided to to focus her time, talent, treasure, and ties and invest in. So hopefully that's one tool to give you an example of how to put this into practice. And then I think from people who are advisors and the nonprofits who are trying to work with entrepreneurs to get them involved, how can those organizations speak to the entrepreneurs about their time, their talent, their treasure, as well as their ties, right, their networks, um, not just assuming any longer that they're going to, you know, write a check and sort of do something else with the rest of the time, but instead want to focus and want to um, align their values with their actions. And I'll also just just uh, add to that that uh, I think in terms of practical things to think about uh, if you're an entrepreneur coming into this space of of giving, um, I would say a couple of things very specifically. One is, you know, many of the entrepreneurs that we talk to, because in some ways what makes them successful as entrepreneurs is that they want to they want to dive in, take risks, find way find you know new innovative ways of doing things, um, and and the next generation that's getting involved of entrepreneurs that are getting involved in giving, they're very much taking that same approach. Um, and, and I think it's important for everybody to embrace that approach. Um, but we also say in the book that it's important for them also to recognize that, um, that they have uh, a, um, you know, that the nonprofit sector is going to be a different place in some ways um, from 
what it is when you start out as an entrepreneur um, in the for-profit sector. There are some differences that are important to take take into account. There are you know new styles of power, power dynamics. The change can be somewhat slower, um, and so in some ways it's sort of recognizing that it's a that it's a somewhat different space, and also being patient with that space because change can happen. Um, we talk about a revolution happening in that space, being driven by these donors, but it's going to be a it's it's going to be a, a potentially slower revolution than maybe some of the uh, the the most uh, you know interested in entrepreneurial next generation uh, want it to be in that space. So we ask them to be resilient, to stick around, and to see that that impact revolution happen over the course of of, of a long period of time. And they'll they'll eventually be able to push it push it there. It just needs to they need to take the time. And the last thing I'll say as a resource for them is to look to their peers to others who are entrepreneurs who have gotten involved in giving, um, not just those that we hear about in the, you know, the, that are the famous names that, that you see, um, but those that are in their own communities um, who are, who have, who've, you know, found organizations that they like to work with, who've found strategies for their giving um, in, in innovative ways of going about making these choices about how they want to give um, and learn from their peers. This next generation is very focused on learning from their peers. Um, and so we tell them to embrace that look for your peers, talk to your peers, ask questions, um, and you'll find a, a wealth of resources and, and insight that can help you make your own strategic choices as you start your giving journey. Well, I think one of the things that really um, kind of shot up at me as I was reading uh, Generation Impact was where the conversation was centering around how next-gen donors really want to be working with smaller nonprofits that can, um, it's almost like they're focused on solving a specific problem and they feel like they're able to get there quicker to have an impact in a a little faster timeline versus working with larger organizations that, you know, it's kind of like the big ship. It's a lot harder to turn it than it is a speedboat. And there was an interesting kind of dialogue that popped up in my head as I was reading that. One, the personal part of me was going, yeah, because big organizations have a lot of waste or they don't necessarily do what they say they're going to do or there's a lot of issues in them. Um, and I recognize that was my own internal bias. But then I sat there and I said, now, wait a minute, though. Those people are out there still trying to affect a positive change, usually across a larger scope uh, of people in geography. So if next-gen donors are going to focus on much smaller organizations, does that mean that the larger organizations need to just completely change, or does it mean they need to break up into smaller components? What do they need to do in order to be able to appeal to this next-gen of of donors? And and we as a, a civilization, as a society, as a community, don't lose the impact of what was already built. I think that's well said. I mean, what we heard, first of all, was the the primary question people asked us was, what what causes will the next gen fund? You know, will they still be interested in what we've been doing previously? Um, so just to set that aside, we found that the top two causes for both the next gen are the same as previous generations, education and basic needs. They're not abandoning the major causes of the day. Um, there are some newer causes starting to come to the floor, such as climate change, environmental issues, um, LGBT rights, um, even some, you know, 
what I would call more strategies like advocacy and civil rights efforts. Um, and there are some tr some causes that we heard, we saw on the decline when we surveyed this population. Um, and our hypothesis for that, uh, for example, in the health area, area of health showed up lower, combined giving organizations like the United Way and federations showed up lower than with previous generations. And our hypothesis is um, much of what to your point, you know, that it's not, we don't believe that it's so much that health is not of interest to the next generation, quite the contrary, but that uh, when faced with requests from large healthcare institutions, you know, the next generation isn't able to see where their gift is going to make an impact. And so, you know, it's not that we don't need those institutions in our society, but how do we start to translate where the resources are going and how they're making an impact and what the needs are and are they reaching the, I was about to say the consumer, are they reaching the the um, person receiving the direct service on the other end? Um, you know, how do we have that kind of transparency um, conversation with with a generation that's so used to being part of the information age and yet in some of these cases it seems opaque, you know, what's what's happening with their resources. So, I would come from the place of we still need healthcare in our country, but how do we start to be more transparent, share more information about how a donor can make an impact in our organization? Yeah, I think one of the things that we often say uh, as, as a sort of consequence of those findings that, that Sharana was just talking about was, um, you know, big organizations need to make themselves look and feel smaller to to attract uh, next generation donors. Um, and and frankly, this may be the case for for certain big corporations as well. But, uh, you know, they want to see how their contribution fits into the work of that organization. Um, and so that, you know, if you're a big hospital, uh, just, just trying to attract, you know, Generation X and millennial donors by having the big thermometer campaign where everybody contributes and we're all reaching the goal of raising a certain amount of money. That's less attractive, uh, you know. It, it, that's less attractive to the next generation than bringing them into a specific activity that's maybe a part of the larger campaign, but to them it feels like I'm part of a small group of my peers and we are working hard with all of our resources, our time, our talents, as well as our treasure to make this goal happen for this. This particular unit of this big institution or this big hospital, whatever that might be, you know, this this becomes our piece of the campaign, and we're really focused on making it, um, you know, making an impact that we can see with this small piece. So I think it's, you know, that there's hope for big institutions, but they are going to have to adapt um, and make themselves feel smaller and show that impact in direct ways to the next gen. So one of the things I've also noticed, and uh, we've even talked about. Uh, as a entrepreneurial organization is how can we as an entrepreneurial organization, because we recognize the importance of where things are moving and how people are going to be generating income and revenue, whether it's as individuals or as groups, how can we learn how to uh, tap into or work with nonprofit, well, not even just nonprofit organizations, but how can we tap that next-gen donor uh, pool and help them recognize there's a lot of different ways to have impact, and sometimes it's about working with an entrepreneurial organization that's trying to help people tap into how they can generate revenue, therefore they turn into uh, another donor themselves. 
What's your advice on that? Well, I think this is a great moment for it because, you know, while the top causes are pretty consistent across the generations, the next gen, you know, what they fund may be similar, but how they fund is really different. You know, they're, again, prioritizing the kind of impact they're having and to that end are willing to take risks. They're willing to experiment. They're willing to invest in innovative efforts to accomplish the kind of impact they want to have in whatever issue area they're working. So um, I actually think it's it's a great moment for um, engagement of entrepreneurs who are naturally creative and innovative and often um, counterintuitive to the market, right, for nonprofits to um, to be able to embrace that, right, if they're able to, certainly B Corps and, you know, sector-crossing innovations, right, are things that next-gen donors seem to be more comfortable with. Um, so, uh, even if you want to take a risk on a program, you know, an entrepreneur is the right one to be your funder and say, let's learn from this. You know, what are we, what are our goals? What are we trying to achieve? How do we fail forward and learn from this and then build something bigger and take our small nonprofit to scale, for example, right? We're going to um, pilot something in our hometown, but if it works, let's roll it out in all of our chapters around the country, across the globe. So, um if I think if the nonprofits are up for it or even sector crossing um, institutions, right, then you have an apt market for it, entrepreneurial next-gen donors. Well, you know, there's something that you guys talk about in the middle of the book about how important it is to be building close relationships. Michael, can you share with us, since we're we're kind of coming down to the end of our time together, and this just seems like a perfect uh, piece to kind of go out uh, on message on is how important is it and then how do you go about building close relationships when basically, and I don't usually like using this word, but it's the one that seems to fit, the paradigm's changed, the needs have changed. Therefore, I'm wondering if the approach needs to change. Yeah, well, I think um, the the paradigm. You know, one of the one of the major points we wanted to get across in this book is that the paradigm is changing um, with these next generation donors, and that means that those who uh, recognize the importance of donors in our world. And I and when I say donors, I want to also emphasize this is not just donors in terms of people who write checks. This is donors in terms of people who think of themselves as really social investors who who you know again want to do good and to advance the causes they care about. Um, through their investing, through their, um, you know, their, their, their entrepreneurial activities, whether those are in the for-profit space or the nonprofit space, um, or in some hybrid middle ground like Sharna was talking about, you know, they, you know, they, they believe deeply um, in wanting to make change, and and they're really um, going to uh, lead us to a different paradigm in thinking about how we we create change. Um, and one key element of that, and in some ways, maybe the most powerful. Powerful um, consequence, certainly for those who work in the nonprofit sector, but I think it's more broadly applicable. Is that the next generation uh, of uh, these sort of you know uh, you know next gen donors and social investors want to engage in extremely hands on ways. They want to give uh, w- with those organizations that they believe in. They want to develop deep, um, uh, trusting, candid, transparent relationships with with any organization that they commit themselves and their values to uh, as a way. Of, of making change in the world, um, and that that 
that means that they're going to be, you know, they're you know, literally going to be in the organization at the conference table in the director's office or the CEO's office a lot more than previous generations of change makers uh, and donors. They're going to want to, you know, be involved in helping solve real problems, not just let the problems sort of be presented to them in this kind of glossy way, uh, like you might, you know, like you might normally get if you're a big donor to an organization and you get a good story about what your money's doing. They want to know what's going wrong and how can I help you fix that? And that's that's a different way of engaging with primary supporters of your organization, or you know, with others, uh, you know, who you're who you're attempting to bring together into a team that tries to uh, you know to advance the cause that you, that that you that you care about and to solve the problem in your community or uh, on the globe that you want to solve. Uh, so they really, you know, there's a great benefit if we can make that work. There's a tremendous benefit in terms of having more impact as a result of that because you get the tremendous set of assets uh, beyond just the financial assets that these, you know, smart, entrepreneurial, eager, uh, and vibrant, sort of energetic, uh, n- you know, new social investors for good want to bring to the to, to the to their work in the world. Um, but it's going to have to require us to adapt to this new paradigm of how they want to be engaged. Um, and uh, and I think that's, that's the process really that we're going through and that we'll be going through for the next uh, decade or so. Uh, that's why we say it's such an important time to be talking about this because right now is when we're sort of trying to evolve and adapt to this this new way of thinking about how the big social investors try to create change in our world. Well, I have to say I love the direction philanthropy is going. It, it gives me uh, a lot of hope as an entrepreneur for things that I've been looking uh, down the road and behind me on the road, so both forward and backward. I, I, it's it's kind of nice to see it all finally coming together, and you guys did a fantastic job of putting that message down in a book that's got some really nice bite-sized ways of digesting it and, and examples of helping people recognize it so that when they see it, they don't miss the fact of what just happened. So thank you for writing Generation Impact. I know sometimes working together as co-authors is not always the easiest thing, at least that's what all the guests on the show have told me, that you tend to learn something about yourself during that process that you weren't (laughs) expecting. So thank you so much for doing that body of work. It's, It's just so important, and we appreciate both of you coming on Breakthrough Radio today. It means a lot to us. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you again for having us. And I'll just say, end by saying we're hopeful too. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. So one of the things that I want you guys to be thinking about as we're starting 2018, especially since we tend to talk about these topics of how um, how to balance or how to even recognize the internal as well as the external strategies in business, that, you know, everything that we talk about, especially as it centers around values, does touch and hit a point every aspect of your life. These are the this is this is exactly why Andrea comes on on the fourth Monday and talks about the power of success mindset. But it's also why we have Jeff come on every first Monday to be talking about that intersection between people and technology. Now before we hop into Jeff's breakthrough bite, I want to ask you a real quick question. Have you visited and participated in a startup grind fireside chat yet? I want to encourage you to make sure that you're reaching out and finding out what's happening in your city, in your country with Startup Grind, because you're going to find a group of enthusiastic entrepreneurs and investors who 
who are looking to create profitable business and affect positive change for the world. And in, you happen to be in Houston this week on Wednesday the 10th. We're going to dive into the science of business and what is the power of having a scientist on your startup team. Okay, so it is time for us to kind of do our little quick dive with Jeff around the intersection of people and technology. It's going to make his mic live. And I, first thing I'm going to ask him is, Jeff, what made you pick this topic today. I have to say, one of the things I love about your segments is you always make me learn something. <laughs> um, I think the, I think what made me think of this topic or got me thinking about it was it's one of those things, and it's a little bit like you said early in the show, but I, I try and ask early, and I was trying to think what kind of things are not really being talked about but are having a pretty significant impact, even though they're generally behind the scenes. And I think the second part of what made me think about this was a lot of people are worried, maybe paranoid is too strong of a word, but worried that they're going to lose their job to automation. And the simple answer is, yeah, you are. But there are ways to work through and around that. And that's, that's what got me thinking about mechatronics. Okay. You know, it's funny because I don't know how many times listeners recognize that we talk about change a lot on Breakthrough Radio I mean, that's kind of why we're here and what we stand for is helping them to recognize when they're in a breakthrough moment and to give them what they need in order to achieve that transformation. So I can't wait to hear how we're going to learn what Megatronics can mean and do for jobs. Okay. Well, I'm ready to go when you are. Hey, I'm I'm pushing the mute button. You you're, take, it, take the show. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to riff off something that uh, Sharna and Michael just mentioned about. Ultimately, it comes down to time, talent, and treasure. And there's a direct correlation into, you know, in effect, everything we do, not just for giving back, but, but for everything else. And then something else you said previous the segment in the show earlier was you talked about uh, settlers and pioneers when you're leading the field. And there's an old line I've used for, I don't know, 20 years, and it's what's the difference between pioneers and settlers? One has the arrows in the front, the other has the arrows in the back. You'll have to think about that one for a while. But let's jump into mechatronics. So this is a topic, it's, it's a term, I should say, that's been around for a long time. So it's a combination of two people. I actually mentioned Tetsuro Moria, but there's also another person named Ko Kikuchi that coined this term back in the late 1960s, so 1969 to be specifically. And the idea back then was, there were engineers, there were systems people, there were people on the factory floor, and they all had to work together. And what they came up with going almost 50 years ago was there's, I don't think they sat back and said, holy cow, there's got to be a name for this, but they did come up with the term mechatronics. And it's gotten a lot more attention in the last couple of years. And living in Seattle, which I do, uh, we have Boeing, which in case people don't know, is one of the two largest airplane manufacturers in the world. One thing that got me thinking about this topic initially was I saw something on TV or maybe heard it on the radio a few months back that six of the local community colleges have programs in mechatronics that feed into the Boeing job machine. And that's what got me thinking about mechatronics and jobs. And, and to be honest, I hadn't really heard the term before, so I did some digging into it. And what it really comes down to is I say it, and it's in the framing post, is Mechatronics means jobs. So a couple of the factors that people can see in the framing post, it's, it's, I think it's education, 
is number one. Uh, touch and think is number two. And longevity is the third one. And I want to explain a little bit about those before I dive into what it is and kind of going beyond the definition. But the education, a lot of people think you need to have a college degree to get a job. And certainly in some fields you do. But one thing about Mechatronics, and this is not a slight, and it's nothing about community colleges, it's nothing about trade schools, it's more about the point that some people, for whatever reason, just aren't built or designed or don't want to go to a college or a university. And that's why I highlight that an advanced degree is not required, but what is required, you have to be willing and able to touch and think and be creative. So if you can work with your hand and with your mind, point number two is you touch and think th think about things. So the the guy or girl that was in your wood shop class or your metal shop class in junior high and high school or the electronics class or in the robotics club, those are the people that can absolutely excel at this field. And hitting on the education part, if you happen to have a degree, a bachelor's degree or a PhD, that's okay too. The point is you don't necessarily need one to excel in mechatronics. And finally, the last one, I think it's probably the most critical, and it's going to change over time, and I'll talk about that as we go on, but the longevity factor. So the last mile of automation, I put in parentheses currently, needs the human touch. So if a robot that is patrolling the grounds at Google, it needs, it's got to park somewhere, it's got to charge somewhere, but if it breaks down and, or if it runs into a pond like it did, I guess, a couple months back, uh, somebody needs to maintain that. That's the human touch. Similarly, on an autom automotive production line and on the manufacturing production line, there are humans that are that, that make that last mile touch. That's that's the back end of it, the, the sort of the, the the tail side. But there's also the front side. So what ultimately, let me let me jump into the definition first. And it's this is in the framing post. So if I say it too fast, people can come back and read it. But and this is straight off the internet. So mechatronics is a multidisciplinary field of science that includes a combination of mechanical engineering, electronics, computer engineering, telecommunications engineering systems engineering, and control engineering. Well, in case you didn't notice, engineering was in there, I think, five times. So uh, surprise, engineering is a big part of it. Well, you don't need to have a degree in engineering to quote unquote be an engineer. I know quite a few people that are amazing at running machine tools and building things and maintaining things, and, and especially innovating when something goes wrong. And they don't have engineering degrees. They're just really, really smart people that know how to use their hands and their minds and to be creative. So I, I think from a kind of, as it says in the framing post, beyond the definition, it's hard to put everything in one bucket. I, I kind of broke it down, in the, and I'll put this in the follow-on blog post that it's, it's almost done, but it'll be coming out as soon as the, the radio part is published. But it's, I broke it down into kind of applications from a factory perspective, from an industry perspective, and in the real world perspective. Some of these are very much things that people may have seen and touched and done. So an ATM machine, a train or mass transit that's being built, for example, here in Seattle now, running uh, HVACs, uh, uh, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems. In the olden days, and I know this is near and dear to your heart, Michelle, because I know your father worked in that space for a long time. In the HVAC space, Johnson Controls and Rockwell and other companies have built systems that connect the entire building. So it's beyond just a heater or a ventilation or a 100-ton machine on the top of a giant building. It's how do all these things interact? So in the real world, what we mostly see from the mechatronic side is what, for the most part, a human had developed to make the user interface or the user experience. And 
the, but the back end of those are extremely complicated. It comes back to the definition that control engineering, system engineering, and huge points of failure, huge factors of failure. failure. So if something goes wrong, nobody gets hurt, and hopefully buildings don't fall down or anything like that. But in the real world, ATMs on the back end, they've been around for 50 years as well, uh, maybe 40 years. But there's a lot of systems that go on in the back, back plane of that. And I'll come back to industries and factories in a second. But what's happening is each of these are very interconnected, and yep, they are their own systems. So ATMs need to connect to the banking system, which also in, in theory needs to connect to the Federal Reserve and other things more, more indirectly. But so they, do, so they do connect to other systems. But what's happening in the modern day is blockchain, which I've talked about with you, Michelle, on a previous show, um, and I've got another one in the works. But blockchain can be a big part of this. So how are changes being tracked, captured, managed, and measured? But equally important within that is there's a big factor for the Internet of Things. So there are, there are sensors everywhere. We talked about this, I think, on the last show. And that was, I mean, there's sensors, I say sensors, sensors everywhere, kind of a, kind of a Wizard of Oz perspective. But all those sensors are constantly spewing off data what data do you need? When do you need it? What trigger points and when do you need to act on them? And in a similar vein, augmented reality and mixed reality are all part of the mechatronics world. And then in the, it's already happening, but more and more we'll see virtual reality. And I don't necessarily mean like in the movies, like the book Ready Player One, which is a Steven Spielberg movie that's coming out, I think, in March of next year. But their whole thing is they, it's, it's a little dystopian, but they live in a whole world that's been created for them virtually. That's not what mechatronics is. Mechatronics is more the practical, realistic stuff we can do, do today and, and also, in a sense, building the things that we're, we're making for tomorrow. So jumping into the industry side, what I think we're going to see more and more of is certainly people will fill these roles to build these and to design them, but they will also get to avoid what uh, Michio Kaku calls the, the three Ds the, of automation, the, the dirty, dull, and dangerous roles robots and other systems that uh, mechatronics will build and mechatronics is really the component underneath that makes a, a lot of those things possible but in the healthcare space there will be a robotic assistance again that's more the consumer side of things but there will also be robotic completely robotic surgery it's already happening with lasik surgery or a robot controls how that works and no there's no person like wizard of oz sitting behind the screen controlling it it's been designed developed and deployed by people, and it could be one person, but oftentimes it's many people with multiple disciplines across what I mentioned earlier, telecommunications, computer engineering, et cetera. From a factory perspective, how are autonomous electronic vehicles being, or electric vehicles being built? Certainly there's a lot of ro robots and automation there, but somebody manages and maintains those. So for, even though the systems are focused on the design of automated machines, that's the big picture of it there are those hands and minds that solve those problems. So if a part on a car isn't fitting just right, sure, a machine can figure out that what the specs are, but generally it's going to take a person, and this will change over time, but generally it takes a person, a human, to figure out what needs to happen to make that neat specs. And similarly, it happens with airplanes. So some of the applications are robots and droids. If you... I have yet I have not seen one at a Home Depot yet, but I know the Amazon factory went from a few hundred to like 5,000 robots and droids inside their warehouses where the robots know exactly in the system, of course, know where every part and every product is, and it brings it to a gathering place where humans typically pack them and make sure they get routed and labeled to the right places. 
And that's, again, an end, an end perspective, but there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes, and that's mechatronics. And in a similar vein, inspectors do all of that too. So how will the average person, I'll say the average consumer, the average factory worker, the average factory owner interact with mechatronics? Well, I think I just mentioned one, robots in stores. I, like I said, I have, yet to been at a, I have yet to be at a Home Depot, for example, or a Costco or anything else and have a robot come up to me and ask me questions. But in the not-too-distant future, they will be your I – mean, in the, in the far-off future, you will probably send a robot to do your shopping for you. But in the more immediate future, a device – and I'll say robot – then it could literally be mobile and go along with you to whatever thing you're looking for and maybe explain how it works and maybe even upload or download some content for your virtual or augmented reality device. But somebody builds and maintains those robots in those stores, and again, that's where Mechatronics comes in. From a factory perspective – it's been going on for almost 50 years, so it's not exactly new. And I, I'd say if you ever want to see mechatronics in action, or really the result of the mechatronics engineers in action, is go to a factory, take a factory tour if you ever can of a semiconductor plant or an automotive plant, or go to a farm. Farms are increasingly Internet of Things enabled and extremely automated. Or if you can't get to any of those, I also recommend watching how it's made. It's a TV show that's on the Science Channel, and it's been around for a long time. In fact, I don't know if they've made new shows for the last 10 years. But the stuff they show, even from 15 years ago, is amazingly automated. Again, that's mechatronics engineers and systems engineers that built those things. And that was 15 years ago. So imagine what they're doing today. So if you've never watched how it's made, I highly recommend it. So kind of in the last so Jeff, you've part got of this 60 year, seconds to wrap up. Okay. All right. So in the last part, I was just going to say some of the costs are there's a loss of those 3D jobs, but they're jobs that people don't necessarily want. It also breaks down, but in, in a cost down and benefit, it breaks down silos so that humans and systems can work together and also people in various departments can work together. And the last thing that really brings it all together is mechatronics is not a panacea to solve everything. There's absolutely a need for soft skills. So there are soft skills that humans still bring to the equation. Yes, they've got those three things I mentioned. They've got their hands and minds and creativity to solve problems, but it comes down to creativity, collaboration, and communication. Those are the still cr three critical things that people bring to the equation, and that's why there will be jobs in a mechatronics space. I love it. You are definitely always there pushing us to think about how this works for us instead of operating in a state of fear of, oh, my God, what's it going to do to me? So we appreciate the fact that you do that. Well, I try, and it's, it's fun to try and break it down into a small segment that, that we have on the show. Cool. Well, I can't wait to hear what you're going to talk about next month. And because everyone's feedback is so important to us here on Breakthrough Radio, the entire team, because our intention has always been to bring you guests each week to, that will expand your knowledge as well as inspire your actions to grow your business. So to accomplish that, it benefits all of us here on the team to hear what you liked, what you didn't like, which topics you're enjoying, which ones you want to learn more about. And we get it that you love to talk to us sometimes with the hashtag BBS Radio. I've noticed a huge, or actually a really significant change in people preferring to communicate privately. So you can email us at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. 
Again, that's the breakthrough specialist at gmail.com. And of course, we appreciate it when you check out additional episodes on Breakthrough Radio at www.thebreakthroughradio.com. So, who else do you want to hear from? Make sure you let us know that. Is Michelle Price here with Breakthrough Radio delivering you the best business minds each Monday live? We're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with you a business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story attracting your ideal customer. We will talk with you again next Monday. 